Good afternoon and welcome to this webinar, uh, this lunchtime looking at practical strategies to tackle labour shortages uh, and thinking really about that sort of element, the, the practical side of this. Uh, we know that there's huge pressures facing you and your organisations at the moment. Uh, and so what we've tried to do is put together uh, what I hope is a really useful and valuable session. Uh, I'm Rob Turner. I'm a director in Grant Thornton's Public Services Advisory Team. Uh, and the reason I'm starting this webinar is uh, just over six weeks ago, uh, I led uh, a piece of work um, that looked particularly at the labour shortages within the whole food and drink supply chain. Uh, and we thought before we dive into the practical with my colleagues, uh, Katie and Kevin, uh, that actually we'd give you uh, a bit of a headlines from the, the report, some of the issues we found. Uh, this report was very much driven by the sector, and I'm sure some of you way well have seen the report and read it others of you will have actually provided evidence and contributed but we we sought to gather a whole range of evidence from uh, from individual businesses from the sector bodies uh, and a whole range of other economic and social data to begin to start to say actually well, what are the real challenges what lies behind uh, these issues of labor availability uh, so what are the challenges then well it seems very obvious to say um, but it has to be labelled that the sector is facing chronic uh, labour shortages. Uh, of all the organisations we surveyed, there was an average vacancy rate of about 13%. Uh, and when you start to apply that to the scale and size of the sector as a whole, uh, we're talking in excess of half a million vacancies. Um, vacancies ranged across all skill levels. Um, uh, from the highest to the lowest, but there was a particularly large proportion in what could be considered sort of processing roles. So nearly half of those vacancies were in processing roles. But if chronic labour shortages is the headline, what we have on the next slide actually is some of those underlying factors um, that were, came out really clearly through the evidence. So of course, there's a huge reliance on migrant labour um, as a sector as a whole, uh, and across multiple skill levels, uh, the, the migrant labour pool plays a really important part in the food and drink sector. Uh, we also saw uh, the, the, the challenges of an ageing sector. Uh, there were particular subsectors, and you probably will have seen the news around sort of lorry drivers, but, but the, the average age of the sector was often older, which meant that not only were there these pressures in the short term, but actually there was a longer term view of pressures as people start to retire and leave the sector. Uh, many people talk to us about the negative perceptions that exist within the sector. Um, and whilst often that was not true, um, what we saw and what we heard was the sort of real concern that the way the sector is inevitably portrayed in the media uh, or to others is actually it's 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 not not a popular place to work. Uh, and when you then compared that to the competition from other businesses, um, actually often that 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 only exacerbated the challenges. So we, we heard quite repeatedly the opportunity to work in, say, an Amazon warehouse being paid more than in a particular part of the, the food and drink sector, which can often be very hard and challenging. Um, actually, that, that became really difficult. Um, of course, uh, people repeatedly talked about, about skill shortages, which aligns to the competition. Uh, and again, those skill shortages existed at all skill levels. And there was a particular challenge we saw around the sort of mid-tier skill level, so degree and above, um, where actually businesses in the food and drink sector are competing with a whole range of other sectors. Uh, and when you start to consider issues such as automation and the role of, of, of technology, 
actually the food and drink sector is starting to compete with uh, other sectors uh, in, entirely. Uh, of course, then there were there are other sort of bigger factors that are much harder for the sector to address. Address, but the sort of just the geographical spread of the sector, the fact that often key businesses are based in quite rural areas, meant that there was often a disconnect between where the sort of real employment centres were uh, and where the businesses. Uh, and the introduction of, of, of government regulation like IR35 has, of course, like it has for a number of businesses, but particularly hit the sector very hard. And I think the overriding thing was that all of those challenges, um, they all existed pre-COVID, if we can remember back to that time. But actually, they've all been exacerbated massively by COVID. Um, and so actually, we, we, when we were looking at the evidence, you could just see repeatedly the way in which COVID has taken each one of those factors and stretched it to, to breaking point um, and beyond. Uh, and, and actually, we didn't just look at the challenges we wanted to understand, particularly because the report was used to, to feed into government discussions with government. We wanted to talk about actually how, how are those challenges impacting on the sector? Uh, and we looked at that really through two lenses. Uh, so the first lens was the sort of direct impact, if I can call it that. Uh, and we heard stories repeatedly about how businesses are having to scale back. Uh, there's been a genuine loss of revenue from these labour shortages. Uh, there's been delivery delays, reduced customer service levels, which longer term has a real impact on, on business uh, in terms of perception. Um, but of course, there was also then uh, product deterioration and wastage. Uh, we, we heard a number of different stories from businesses about how they, ju they just couldn't get the product from their, their, their different sites out to the market. Um, that in turn has then put extra strain on the business, um, which has then meant that actually growth and investment plans were, have been put on hold. Um, there's an increasing workload on staff. So there was almost this sort of virtuous circle. The people who were employed were being put under even more pressure and even more strain as they tried to wrestle with actually the increasing pressure. Um, or there was the challenge of actually people being recruited who just didn't have the right experience, which again, created strain, inefficiencies, but it also placed even more of a burden on those existing longer term members of the team. Uh, and people did talk about actually the fact that, that if this issue wasn't resolved quickly, there would be potential closures of business. The impacts were stark. Um, you will, of course, be living through these. Uh, you'll be dealing with them um, on a day to day basis. So you will be very aware of them. But actually, we also thought it was really important to, to make government aware of the knock on impacts. Um, those things that actually, whilst they're not, they may not be directly true at the moment, could start to emerge if these con uh, issues continue. So we talked about actually the ripple effect through the supply chain um, and, and actually how, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a large and broad supply chain feeding the food and drink sector. And actually there were real challenges there. And then, of course, sort of some big, big headline impacts around food availability, price rises, animal welfare and environmental impacts. Again, this, this what the purpose of this wasn't to sort of scaremonger or, or, or create unnecessary noise, actually, but it was just to really highlight the very direct and real issues. So if those are the impacts, um, the report then went on to talk about uh, and, and the next slide we've got in terms of what actually needs to be done. And we thought it was really important within the report to not just sort of frame the asks, what does government need to do to help the sector? but actually to really help government understand what, what, what actions the sector itself, and I'm, when I say the sector, I mean the broadest sector you could imagine within food and drink, um, what, what actions have already been taken, because we didn't want sort of a flippant or, or an easy response. Um, 
we've seen a sector that's already enhanced recruitment and retention mechanisms. Um, we've seen an increased focus um, on recruiting domestic workers. We've seen wages go up um, as well as an increased reliance on contractors. Uh, we've, we've Businesses have started to consider and some have even took uh, action relocation plans. Um, there's a continued investment in automation, but the caveat being actually investment is hard when the business is under pressure. Um, and we've seen uh, a whole range of, of other actions that try and create flexibility from both the buyer and the customer, as well as initiatives to improve the image of the sector. So if that's what had been done, um, the asks then uh, were the introduction of this 12 month COVID uh, recovery visa. Um, we have seen bits of that now come through, obviously with the recent fuel crisis, uh, but the, the, the argument and the, the demand is still there to cover a broader range of sectors. Uh, there's a need to revise and expand the seasonal workers pilot scheme. Um, we've called for increased, increased research and statistics just to really understand the impact of the ending of free movement. Because actually we know that government will want to make evidence-based decisions, but where they're in fact sort of best placed to do that is actually really looking at the data themselves. Uh, and we've asked them to review the, 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 the shortage occupation lists. That, that's a sort of immediate asks, but actually we then also framed a set of asks that need to be actioned over the coming months. Um, and the slightly longer term, and certainly, hopefully, this will be start to be reflected in some of what um, Katie and Kevin go on to say. But it's about promoting the sector as a career choice. It's about a coordinated approach to training, uh, better incentives, and, a, and, a, and an apprenticeship model that works more effectively for the sector, uh, as well as the expansion of some of government's existing schemes, which were seen to be good but not great, if I could use that phrase, and actually how they could be uh, reviewed, expanded to make them more applicable and more suitable uh, for the sector. That's a very quick run through uh, of the findings. We didn't want to spend our time sort of talking about the report. We very much wanted to focus in on the practical strategies. So I'm going to hand over to my colleague Katie uh, to talk you through that from a people perspective. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Rob. Um, so good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Katie Nightingale. I lead our people practice um, in, uh, in Grant Thornton. Um, so my background has been in, in HR within industry for 20 years prior to joining Grant Thornton. So very much um, talking to clients about anything to do with their people agenda. So there's been lots that we've been talking about over, um, particularly through the pandemic and, and prior to that. So we're seeing lots of lots of kind of challenges around the people space. And clearly from what Rob was saying, um, we, you know, there there are some real challenges within your sector and it's how do we look at those practical strategies um, to, to kind of you know actually start to increase the attraction and, and start to look at how and also how we retain um, talent going forward so what I want to kind of talk to you today is, is a bit about kind of some of the things in terms of when we're looking at attraction. So how do we start to increase um, your profile and attraction of your business? Um, I mean, there's certainly, um, Rob mentioned this around kind of the, that image pieces. There's something around looking at your employer brand. So what is the image that you're, you're sending out um, to potential employees out there? What does that say about you and your culture? Um, so starting to think about, you know, refreshing that and having a look at whether that's actually going to be attractive to, to people going forwards. Um, I think increasing your reach as well, using social media and starting to think about, well, you know, if we're looking at perhaps a younger audience, where are they starting to kind of, you know, spend their time? How do we kind of attract um, emerging talent 
into the organization so just start to refresh your your kind of um your outreach um type programs as well to be able to um, create that kind of that buzz around what you're doing um particularly if you are in remote areas again it's like but how do you start to kind of put a, a broader reach out so people start to consider you as an employer for choice um, I think we've we've um, we've hit on. I think Rob hit on sort of apprenticeships, and and that is a really great way of increasing skills. And I know there's obviously challenges around accessing that and being the right thing. And there's certainly more consultation to to help shape that going forward to be really fit for purpose for you. But getting your um, uh, apprenticeship campaigns right and and accessing lots of different skills, so not just necessarily um, whether it's kind of you know process led or um, whether that is kind of food and drink specific, but starting to think more broadly as well around any your support functions and how apprenticeships can support um, the development of individuals and that helps increase inclusion and diversity as well it's a really great way to do that um, widening your talent pool now clearly because some of the challenges that we've had is around um, the migrant workforce how do we start to think about widening your talent pool um, and looking at other transferable skills so starting to think about you know what you're looking for at the market what can you look for in terms of the the behavioral and the technical skills um, that you're looking for and what you can you you can um, get from other you know pools of talent um, and be, then be able to kind of develop the skills going forward so start thinking um, broader in that sense as well um, look at things like friends and family referral schemes and um, to encourage you know your current employees to, to bring um, new talent and uh, potential employees in they can be great ambassadors for you so again thinking about you know how they go out into the community and talk about your your um, uh, your business um, there's things around kind of lowering the minimum age for workers. Um, I think thinking about whether you do need to have a minimum a minimum age, again, thinking about what that job is um, and whether that's going to be something that could expand your pool as well. Obviously, a number of things to think about and just making sure you're legally compliant there, um, but something to, to definitely consider. Um, there's also things like using the kickstart schemes and I'll talk a little bit more around um, a slightly newer um, scheme that, that you may not be aware of and we'll share a link to access more information but looking at where there's kind of government schemes and funding that you can access which will help you either increase your reach or increase your ability to kind of bring new um, employment employ, employment into your organisation. Um, a couple of other things to think about is, you know, looking at your job descriptions. Again, this picks up on your your employer brand. You know, um, is that kind of showing you in the right light? Is it being descriptive enough? Is it inclusive enough um, to be able to get the right people in and get people attracted to your roles? Um, and then thinking about students and how you might bring them in through work experience, which then moves them on to um, permanent employment and using that as a pipeline of talent. Um, and then I guess the last thing, and I put this last on the list because I know it's often people think, well, look, you know, the one thing that's going to get you a bit if you pay more. Well, when we think about the hierarchy of needs around around this is that often, you know, money isn't at the top of people's needs. It's about kind of your culture. It's about having a really kind of like enjoyable time at work. It's about getting um, support it's about getting the right development um, and then yes getting a, a fair wage so there's a number of things without having to go I've got to suddenly pay more wages but it is right to kind of look and refresh if you are in a competitive um, sort of position to be able to offer that so I think the big thing for, for me is just taking that step back starting to kind of review your employer brand and your employer offering to make sure that that is attractive going forward because sometimes we, we often find that we're still doing the same things we were several years ago and we do need to just take that time to, to step back and, and, and review and refresh and definitely reach out to you know look at what other industries are doing what other you know your your um whether it's peers that you can talk to um because all of that's going to help as you go forwards 
So that's in terms of kind of increasing attraction and a few um, ways of doing that. But one of the biggest things is actually kind of, you know, maintaining your staff. It's much more expensive to have to buy in new talent than it is to retain and develop people because you've got a huge amount of knowledge and experience that you're holding on to. So really think about well, what is it that you're providing your, your people to, to stay? And again, not just focusing on how are we paying the most but what does that culture look like and actually thinking about the ways of working um, and I know there's lots and lots of conversation around hybrid working which obviously for office-based staff there's a lot more flexibility and completely understand when you're client facing or you're in a manufacturing environment it's people need to be on site but there's still things that you can think about in terms of flexibility that will help um, enable perhaps more part-time working more flexible working so really start to challenge yourselves around what that might look like and what the possibilities are without thinking it won't work for us we've got to do it the same way we always have done so definitely think about that um something that kind of is part of the attraction and uh, the retention is thinking about your employee benefits and and again often we don't see employers refreshing this as often as we can and employee expectations particularly over this pandemic have changed quite fundamentally um so things around well-being from a psychological and a financial perspective and there's lots more access to, to, to benefits which can be really flexible for employees that can really enhance their own unique kind of life experience so definitely take some time to think about what that looks like um, and get that right because that's going to be um, a big a big piece um, for people um, as well um, so also thinking about if you're in a remote place you know what on-site accommodation have you got on-site facilities that will be attractive for people that could be something there may be an investment there but again thinking about the um, the benefit of doing that longer term in terms of keeping um, and also attracting staff that could be something to consider also alongside that worker welfare services whether that's kind of occupational health or other services that they can access again particularly in a remote workplace what could you do that could again really really support people um, as well i mean things like you know is there any opportunity around childcare? the various schemes and things like that um, then a couple of other things um, to just lastly talk about is around investing in employee development. So utilising apprenticeships, thinking about how you can upskill people to kind of, you know, from an individual perspective, be able to develop. Um, and, you know, we've talked about kind of automation. Kevin's going to talk about that shortly. That's a huge sk different skill set for some people. So how do we get on the on the front fit foot to develop those skills? And then lastly, starting to look at moving, you know, where we've got temporary workers, how do we make that transition to permanent? How do we support that move um, going forward to, to really make people feel secure um, in those roles? And what can those programmes look like um, to support that as well? So one of the things that I've mentioned around um, accessing uh, support, um, there is a new service that's been launched by the FDF, um, which is using the, the Kickstart initiative. But it's actually providing members um, of all sizes across England, Scotland and Wales um, with an employee for up to six months on a temporary contract um, of 25 um, hours a week. Um, so this is at zero cost to FDF members um, and obviously the government um, will be paying the salary. So this could be something that could help in a, as a temporary measure to be able to kind of support going forward. So if you want to have um, if you want to have a look at this, we have got a link that will pop in the chat for you um, so that you can access that and just have a look at the details and find out a bit more if that feels like something um, that would be helpful to your organisation.
And then sort of lastly, just wanted to kind of think, I guess, bigger picture. And, and I know we've been in a, in a kind of cycle of just dealing with what's going on now. And as we start to kind of move um, towards um, what I, I hate the label, but this kind of new normal, um, are we taking the time to kind of get our heads above the parapet? You know, we're, if we're leaders of an organisation to start thinking about, well, you know, what what do we need to look like in the future? How do we need to change? What skills do we need? Um, and where have we got the gaps? And it's this whole piece around taking that time to kind of do that strategic planning to start to kind of get, again, get ahead, ahead of the game and really understand, you know, will we need the same skills we will do in a few years time, whether that's two to five to 10 years. Um, and sometimes we can't always think so far out, but I think certainly thinking ahead to, as to what might be some of the external factors, thinking about what you've just gone through, start to do some of that scenario planning to think about what your people um, need to kind of have as, as skills. Um, that's something I would definitely encourage and we're talking to clients about in terms of how you might do that for your organization. So that's definitely something to start thinking about um, and, and trying to do that planning for, for tomorrow. So um, I think that's um, that's kind of what I want to talk about some practical. Hopefully that's been helpful. We'll have a look if there's any um, questions and we'll kind of look at the questions um, at the end. But I'm going to pass over to my colleague, um, Kevin, now to, to talk to you about the practical strategies from an operational perspective. My name's Kevin Wilson. I work in operational advisory and that's very much along the sort of manufacturing and supply chain side of Grant Thornton. I'm an associate director within that field. And I want to talk about this sort of the operational side, and I will be focusing upon those, the process people that were identified as really the shortfall, which uh, we're facing at the moment. Having this labor shortage has really introduced a new capacity constraint. So this is a labor capacity constraint. Perhaps what we may have been used to seeing is a production uh, or a machine orientated capacity constraint. But now we need to think of this in terms of our labor is constraining our capacity to do work or to produce. So when we are thinking about this, this is our capacity constraint strategy. Are we going to try and increase our capacity without the need for increased labor? And or how do we make the most from our available capacity? And there are certain strategies that we can employ for that. I am going to apologize for being pretty generalistic about this because everybody's business is different and some things may be more suitable or less suitable than others. First one though, automation. This is very much about how can we get more without using more labor? Automation also provides us the opportunity to move that labor around. So if we have a labor pool, we can shift that by automation of some tasks and shift them around where it might be needed a little bit more. But that also must be done in association with upskilling, cross-functional teams, multiple skilling. So where is your skills matrix? Can we get more people? that are skilled up in more roles. This gives you more flexibility to use that labor. So that is to the benefit of planning what you're going to be doing. So when we think about automation, we think about the repeatable tasks which can reduce the reliance upon labor, such as the movement of goods. Simple things like conveyors rather than moving through by pallet trucks, automated guided vehicles that are moving the pallets for you or even pallet tracks that move around and move your goods from one area 
to another. Think about the pick, place and pack of goods. You've got palletizers, layer stacking, automated shrink wrappers. I know that there will be organizations that have already done this, but this is trying to sort of be very generalistic about it. The automatic box fillers, case erectors, sealing, automatic labeling as well. And when we're thinking about the automatic labeling, we could also think about box printing as well. Automated warehouse. We hear about the Amazons going to a fully automated warehouse. This is coming down. I am seeing it in smaller scale distributors as well. So this is an area that is becoming much more available and potentially at a lower cost base than it previously was, which means that pallet movements, stock replenishments and automated picks can be done. There is, of course, the tailored processing equipment going to specific suppliers around check weighing, dosing, bottling, you name it, closures, all those sorts of things. Great, but there are companies that can help you with that. I also get involved with SCADA or MES. SCADA is the supervisory control and data acquisition. That's where you can look at how you've been performing to identify key opportunities, manufacturing execution systems, which show you the rate, the production control. And that's what leads me on to the next one, which is, so if we have that information, how could we get more productive time. This is very much getting the most out of what you've got with a limited capacity constraint, i.e. labor. More productive time, an optimal speed and the reduction of waste. So I'm not going to go into all the calculations on OEE for this one, but um, think of downtime. Where is time lost? And the reason why I'm relating this to labor is that labor can be standing around waiting for that changeover to occur, which is a loss of production time. So in terms of if you had a production line where you've got say 10 staff sort of adding bits to a pot and that then gets packed at the end of the line, goes into a box and so on, you might consider line jumping. So you have three production lines, first line is producing second line is set up for the next product and third line is in clean down so you can jump from one to the next without having to wait for that changeover i talk about three bin changes well this might be three hoppers similar sort of thing three hoppers you've set the first one that's in production at the moment you've already set the th second one up for the next product that allows you to set up third bin, clean down the first one. That's a three bin system. I'm going to mention SMED single minute exchange of dyes. Yes, it does come from manufacturing industry, but that's very much more around when you're doing a changeover, let's get all the bits that you need to do the changeover arranged, organized and on site at the correct time in order to do that changeover. It's not just about that exchange of dye. Breakdowns on machines themselves, again, causes people to wait around 
until the machine is fixed. What is the root cause of those? What is the rectification? And not just what is the rectification, but what's the long-term fix for that? How can you stop it from happening again? The 100-year fixes. Waiting. Waiting time in terms of materials, the planning and execution. Um, I come from a bit of a planning background and um, for me, the fixed plan, how many people out there are not working to a fixed plan where it's constantly updating, changing because we're constantly running from hand to mouth. How can we therefore expect the materials to be there on time or are they at the back and they're not in the right order because we've changed the order? Those are things that we need to get a, a control of to reduce the amount of waiting time for the next order. Optimal speed, again, if we come back to a production line with 10 people on there, what is the optimum speed? It's not just about going faster, and I always put speed in with re the reduction of waste to give yield, but think about if you can run at 100 boxes with 10 people on that line for an hour, what would it be with seven people? I don't want to go back to the 1970s with men in dark suits that will fire people on a whim against a time and motion study, but line studies are important to understand what are the processes that we do and what is the optimum number of staff that we need to have in place and can we get a similar output with a reduced number of people doing two tasks at the time. It might reduce the speed of the line compared to a machine speed upstream, but that would be optimal for your labour. Think our capacity constraint is now labour rather than machine. The rate to produce the best and most consistent product. I've worked in bakeries where they were always working on the volume output, KPI driven, you must get this number of cases out. And so they were rushing, they were throwing the 10 inch and 12 inch sponge cases onto the line, causing damage. So this is where it has to be a rate that is going to give you your most consistent good product. Leads us on to waste. The number of times that I've heard, but it's okay, and this is very much from the shop floor, it's okay, the scrap, that can go into the staff shop and we can sell it. The waste, that's okay because we sell our waste to the pig farm. And the giveaway, but it's only one or 2%, this is still a waste stream. It's actually worse than that because you've done work to the raw materials before it's ended up as waste. So waste must be controlled. And of course, less waste means you won't have to make it again. Reduce the amount of time, that's our capacity constraint. That's what goes back to our labor constraint. And I can't just talk about the available capacity from terms of in production improvement. We also must look at the biggest bang for our buck from a commercial standpoint. Think of the margin analysis. Where do we get our revenue from? Where do we get our gross margin from? Where do we get our net margin from? What consumes the most of our capacity, our people's precious time and effort? So, and are we getting the best bang for our buck from that? 
I wish I knew, but 80-20 always seems to work. I know that there must be mathematicians, statisticians who can show me how it works. But when I do an 80-20 analysis, 80%, 20%, you will find that it's around about those sorts of figures. You will get 80% of your revenue from 20% of your products or customers. That's the kind of analysis that I would suggest going out to have a look at to see where are we making our money. And let's not forget promotions. If we are capacity constrained from labor, would it be a sensible idea to run a buy one, get one free promotion, which will give us five, ten times the amount of volume through in a month or a week compared to? running our standard product and do we make enough when we are doing those because that is eating into our capacity do have a look at your promotions when we have that information from the abc 8020 pareto whatever we call it this week then we can do something with it and don't forget the rebates don't forget the cost of transport as well to be included with that so identify which are the products that generate the most revenue or margin. Is there an opportunity to reduce that tail? Is there an opportunity to remove those runners, repeaters, strangers, dogs, whatever we want to call them, apples, oranges, which are the ones that we can take out which won't impact our margin but will still give us the best value? Think about product simplification. I talk about the automotive strategy, uh, automation strategy, Freudian slip there. Um, standardization. If we're going down the route of an automatic case packer, it would make sense to reduce the number of carton sizes and specs that we use. So don't do this in isolation. If we're going to self print, labels for instance it would make sense to have the same size shape label reduces changeovers why do we want to reduce changeovers reduces the amount of time reduces the amount of waiting time for people on the line so these are just some very broad brush and i know that they're not specific but ideas for you to go away and have a look at these strategies are not to be done in isolation. I will talk with Katie on. We have an automation investment strategy over three, five, ten years. What does that mean for our HR strategy, our people investment from apprentice to manager to leader? How are we going to link these two together? Putting in more automation will mean upskilling our workforce. It will mean that will work for us for retention. Process optimization. OK, let's go out to the shop floor. Let's gather those ideas. And shouldn't we incentivize those people that allow us to run that little bit quicker through their suggestion schemes? Go out and let's have a talk to them. It gives them also that culture of improvement um, to do better in what they're doing. and. That gives them satisfaction and recognition of something that they've done well, which all leads to a culture that wants to be part of your production family. And with that, I think we move on to any questions and answers. And uh, I don't know whether there's been any posted so far.
There, there has, Kevin. We've had some good uh, questions come in. Please do keep adding uh, your questions to the chat. Um, I will take chair's prerogative and answer one that's been uh, that I can probably answer before actually uh, giving Katie and Kevin a bit of a run around with some of your great questions. But um, the, the question that's been posed is wh when do we think the government will respond to the asks in the, the labour market availability report? Um, the, the, the short answer is we, we don't know for certain when they will respond um, in detail. Uh, what we do know is that there are a number of conversations happening and that we are starting to see elements around uh, responses. Next week, there is the uh, government spending review. I think it will be interesting to see in that whether there are any um, any big sort of issues that are flagged there in terms of actually clear responses to some of the issues we're facing. Um, so apologies that that's not a very specific answer. Um, but 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 at this stage we just we're just not sure. Um, but I do know from chatting to some of the sector groups that were part of that report, they're having uh, continual conversations with with different government departments. Um, Katie, I'll come to you next. Um, there's a question here around tackling specific skill shortages such as digital skills. What are your your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's a it's a big thing at the moment in terms of you know people being much more technology enabled, I suppose, and especially as Kevin's point around kind of automation. Um, I think there's lots of different options. I mean, certainly there's government schemes around kind of increasing basic digital skills, which I think definitely have a look at and, and access. Um, if it's more advanced things, whether that is kind of you know more kind of looking at systems, there are a number of apprenticeships very specifically which will have um, it will have a focus or will certainly have a digital aspect to them. Um, so it's, it's thinking about what is it that you you need to um, upskill on. You know, if it is more advanced, then it's looking for specific programs. Again, definitely utilise you know the apprenticeships where you can, um, because that will be the best option um, to, to do that. And there are lots of different providers out there. So again, it doesn't necessarily have to be at a college, because if that isn't as practical for you, there are um, lots of different options where you know providers will come into the organisation and kind of run the apprenticeship that way in a much more kind of like work based. Um, approach. So I think there's lots of different options out there and um, depending on the level you want to do. So um, definitely have, have a good search out there. Look at government options. Look at things that are funded as well. Brilliant. Thanks, Katie. I will give you a momentary respite while I come to, to Kevin. Kevin, um, what, what are your thoughts on the sort of next big thing on the horizon? Obviously, we've talked labour shortages. We've talked a bit there about digital, which I guess sort of sits in the in the middle. Um, what, what's the next big thing, do you think? Um, next big thing, I think that it's been in the press recently. I know that we're going to be dealing with um, cost increases. You know, we're seeing those across the board and uh, gas prices is um, certainly one to look out for, um, depending on whether you've hedged so far or whether you've been impacted on it immediately. Um, that's going to put additional pressures and sort of how can you get those price increases um, across um, that will certainly be a challenge from the operational perspective the the digitization actually sort of um, using the tools and analysis to drive the improvements you know so what information can we get back from the shop floor to identify what are those causes of potential loss and then act upon them. Excellent. Um, Katie, I'm going to bring a couple of questions together here. 
um, the the issues and opportunities around diversity and inclusion are, are huge and um, we're having these sort of conversations every day within Grant Thornton which is is great um, th there's a question here around I suppose two, two, two questions but but we'll bring them together so uh, anything we can share from what Grant Thornton's done uh, itself as a business around diversity and inclusion and then more specifically anything Katie from your experience around the sort of use of more inclusive language in job descriptions and how we can use that as a an opportunity to attract people yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, a quick one around actually the, the, the language, uh, certainly for job descriptions. I think I, I noticed that one. There's there's actually a really um, a, a really good tool that's that you can um, have a look online. It's I think it's called, if I remember rightly, Gender Decoder. Um, I can't because I can't access the Internet at the moment because of the I'm sharing the slides. But it, um, there is a way that you can actually put your job description in all the words from that. And it will actually give you a view on whether you've got more masculine terms, more um, more kind of um, sort of gender neutral terms and things like that. And that's quite useful from a gender specific perspective. And that often can be one of the things that we look at when we look at job descriptions in terms of how we word things um, and how they come across to individuals. So that's that's a useful one. Um, I think more generally, um, it's about thinking about um, things like you know flexible working and making sure that in your job descriptions you're explaining um, you know what options are available and thinking about how that resonates um, with different groups. A big thing that we're doing in Grant Thornton, which picks up on multiple things, but also can help with your attraction strategies, is really talking to your workforce. Or if you haven't got a particularly diverse workforce, starting to work with either groups that are focused on um, so organisations that focus on supporting um, perhaps um, minoritised groups or groups in the community that can access so that you can start to get a feel and actually almost do focus groups to get a feel for you know, how does how does our, um, our brand um, and our wording actually resonate out in the community to get that feedback? often we find that we're trying to develop these things from a lack of diversity sort of set so you might have you know a group of people that come from a very similar background that are trying to create these things um, and actually then of course it resonates with them but doesn't resonate with, with everyone else so definitely do that sense check and we've been doing that in Grant Thornton so anything that we do in terms of um, messaging out um, particularly if it is around um, uh, you know supporting a minoritized group we would always do that sense check around how that's going to land before we do anything uh, more more publicly in that space so definitely kind of have that kind of consultation access where you can get people's um, diverse views um, as well excellent Katie thank you um I will take uh the next one um that we've seen which is what's been the average increase in wages um I, I can't comment sort of for the sector as a whole, but as part of our um, research, we, we we got information back from over 100 organisations um, and the average increase in wages from those organisations was between 10 and 30 percent. So quite a big range. But actually, I think it really shows about where the different parts of the pressures are in the in the supply chain. Um, uh, and some of that sort of uh, the drivers end, uh, particularly some of the sort of farming, the, the people working on the farms and the sort of pickers. And that was where we were seeing some of the highest wage increases. Um, but but it was certainly something that we were seeing affecting all parts of the sector. And actually, it was at such a rate, it was just not going to be sustainable over the longer term. And I think that's where the sort of bigger challenge really starts to starts to kick in. 